We are picking back up in our study on the book of Hebrews. We've, we've been working on Hebrews for quite a while, going just a bit at a time. We took a break for, the Christmas, uh, for Christmas, and now we're starting back up. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. You can turn there in your Bible, on your phone. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to just take it a, a chunk at a time. I want to say, um, it, 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 we've been looking at Hebrews, and we're seeing that there is this constant theme. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is, look to Jesus, focus on Jesus. He starts at the very beginning. Jesus is better than angels. He gave, the very first sermon, he gave seven things, seven reasons, in just, in just like five or six verses on why Jesus is better. And then he talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels because, you know, the Jews at that time really had this idea that Michael, the archangel, was going to be the one put, kind of put in charge of the earth after the Messiah came. And he was saying, no. Jesus is better than all the angels. Then chapter 2, he flips it, and he goes, yet Jesus became lower than the angels. Why? So that he could, he could um, purchase our salvation by becoming a man. And then he comes back up, and he starts following right through, uh, right through this chapter. Jesus is better, better than the priesthood, better than he's, he's in this. He's in this part of the, Jesus is the best. He's the high priest. He's the better high priest. Uh, and he's been talking about Melchizedek. And he spends a lot of time talking about Melchizedek, about someone who's not mentioned just once in the Bible historically, and, and uh, very brief. But he spends a lot of time on that. And today's passage, um, Hebrews 7, if you look around, you will find not, not many, not many, like I, there's some pastors I listen to, some different, not many talk about Hebrews 7. They don't talk about Hebrews 6 a lot either. And if you were here when we went through Hebrews 6, you understand why they don't talk about Hebrews 6 a lot. It's a grapple. It's a fight. It's a, you know, to come up with a coherent idea of what's being said there. But I believe it can be. You just go listen to my sermons on Hebrews 6. Um, there's the simple way of doing it, right? But we're going to look at, there's a lot of imagery here. And there's a lot of Old Testament imagery and the primary reader of this book was first century Jews who had sacrificed at the Jewish temple recently. And it was still going on and had extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. That's the primary reader. First century Jews who have sacrificed at the temple, understand what's going on there, have a really strong grasp of their Old, Te their Old Testament. That's their Bible. So for those of you who have not recently sacrificed at the temple and have not grown up memorizing the Old Testament, and don't look to the law as the bedrock of your life, this could be a little more difficult. And it is not as earth-shaking and soul-stirring, as powerful as it would be to a first-century Jew. So this is where we do the hard work, and we talk about this a lot, of getting into their shoes as best we can. But of course, we can't completely. And, and this... Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews, he is going to, he started this, he started talking about Melchizedek earlier. He's going to really hit hard on Melchizedek in this chapter. And, and he, in, in many ways, uses the same argument. He just rephrases it in different ways. He comes at it from different angles. And so we're, we're going to, we're going to work hard at trying to understand them. But understand this, this was their life. This is what they grew up with. It's what their parents grew up with. It's what their grandparents, great-grandparents grew up with. It's instilled in their culture and their life and their day-to-day -day living. 
I was trying to think about what that could be like. When I was a kid, um, growing up uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, I played on a hockey team, a club hockey team, the Capital Boys Ice Hockey Club. And uh, we would get up at 5 a.m. three days a week to go practice, and we'd play games. And, then they'd, and, and I, the, the one I was on my age group, we, we thought we were pretty good. We played in some tournaments. We played teams from New York and from, from Boston and Philadelphia and, uh, and up in up, upper Michigan. And, and we did well. We did well. So one time, our club sponsored a big tournament in, in the D.C. area. And because it was Washington, D.C., you know, a lot of clubs wanted to come. So they had a bunch of Canadian teams that were coming. And our coach got with us before a couple of our practices, and he would say to us, you guys got to understand, these boys, they skate before they can walk. They freeze, they freeze their lawns and skate on it all day. You know, we get up at 5 o'clock in the morning because that's the only time we can get rental time at a public ice arena to be able to practice they practice every day of their life. This is a whole new level. You boys better get on your, you just be on your game, work hard, skate like you've never skated before, you know, go. And um, so um, I remember the first team we played was from a little place called Kittinger, um, Canada, Kittinger near Ontario. I think it was a little town. And they were kind of hoping because it was a little town, you know, it would be more our level. And and uh, right off from the face-off, one of their fours brings down. I'm a defenseman, you know, and he comes sweeping wide. And so I do what they tell you to do. You go down on one knee. You put your stick on the ice so that the stick to your skate almost to your knee becomes a block for the pass that inevitably he wants to put it in front of the goal. And so I skated hard, turned, and I'm, I'm gliding backwards like this with my stick on the ground. I can't do it anymore. You notice that, right? I can't do that. And, and oh, yes, I can. So I'm like this. I'm like this, and I got my glove out, you know. And, I, and, and, and that kid, he looked at me, and he just went, and he goes, pink, right through the little hole between my knee and my front foot. And the puck goes right in front of the goal. Our goalie saved the shot, but that's when I knew we're in trouble. We're in trouble because every once in a while, they would start calling their shot. If you, if you know in hockey, you can divide the goal up into five sections, and, and the fifth section is between, between the, uh, the goalie's in hockey, the fifth section is between the goalie's legs. It's called the five hole. So all of a sudden, this one kid, he's skating down. He goes, five hole, boom, shoom, goal. And I'm going, I, we're in trouble. We're, this, why? Because this was their life. This was their life. We picked up hockey, right? Some of us played other sports. So we, we did it because, you know, we loved it. But hockey wasn't my life. I didn't live and breathe and eat and sleep hockey. And those kids did. And they schooled us. We suddenly realized what really good hockey is. We thought we were something. We realized we were a big fish in a very small pond. But as soon as you got into a lake, you got eaten alive. And we did. This is what it is for these, the, the readers of this book. They've, they eat it. They sleep it. They think it. They've grown up with it. It is their life. Every bit of their, it's just put into them. And we're going to talk about 
as he addresses them and the arguments he makes. He's going to talk about this as we try to get into their shoes. He's telling them that the ministry of Jesus, the author here, the ministry of Jesus is better than the ministry of the priests at the temple, which was still going on as this was written. I mean, think about that. All your life, you've seen these priests minister. You know it was ordained by God in the Bible, in the law. And the law is the foundation the sacrificial system is built upon. This is everything to them. And this reader is going to say, there's, this writer is going to say, there's something better. There's something better, right? So he's going to talk about the superiority of Melchizedek. Here's the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So he's telling us about this man, Melchizedek. Now, I I want you to understand the setting. In, In Genesis 14, and here we go, right? This is Genesis 14 is Hebrew names on steroids, Ready? At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch was king of Elisar, Ketalamar was king of Elam, and Tidal is the king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Mor, Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemember king of Shemember king of Zeboim. I just somehow that rolls. I like that one. Zeboim. It sounds like a town in New Jersey. I think that's what it is. And the king of Bela. That is Zerar. And these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim. For 12 years, they'd been subject to, 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 to Kader Lamar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So what's going on? Okay, so there's these kings nearby, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, these kings, and they were under the rule of Assyria. And the rule of Assyria was enforced by whoever the, the closest kings were to the Assyrian king. And they were these kings that he said were going to come down. They had rebelled. They'd thrown off the yoke of, of, of Assyria. And, and so they, these kings are coming down to enforce the law. They're coming down to enforce the law. So what did they do? They defeat these four kings. They ravage the area. They get to Sodom. They take tons of captives, one of whom was a man named Lot. And then with all these captains and all this, all this booty, all this incredible wealth, They go marching back up. They've enforced the law. They've made their point. And so what happens? Abraham gets word. He's on the other side of the sea, uh, the the, the Dead Sea, and he gets word that his nephew Lot has been taken captive. And so Abraham decides to do something. Now, excuse me. If I, sometimes I, I, I think I would love to write my own paraphrase of the Bible. And my, and my idea of what would be make it fun reading is a paraphrase that incorporates um, King James English with more modern usages, right? I'd call it the LBV, right? The LBV Bible, the loose Bob version. And, it, and Genesis 14 would be summed up kind of like this. Upon hearing the perfidy of these four ne'er-do-wells, Abraham saith, Oh, no, homie, don't play that. Thou thinkest thou can come down here, open a can, and bail? Nope. Abraham gathereth his army, and three other stout leaders, and their armies, and their cohort, and he pursueth greatly. 
Abraham took over these rapscallions at the town of Dan and smiteth them with an everlasting smite. He continued to smite them until, yea, verily, all the bling that was absconded had been returned. Here endeth the reading of Genesis 14. So Abraham pursues. He fights them. He has, he has his own army, and he's got three other guys with him that have an army, and, and they catch them and they defeat them. Because what happens is, most of the time with these types of deals, armies are paid by what they get in, in the fight. And so they carry it all home, right? And so they attack them at night. It was a brilliant plan. They attack them at night. The army panics. They don't know what they're up against. Every man runs to his, basically, is what we know would happen in these types of situations, is every man would run to his tent, get the, the, the most expensive stuff he's got, and then just start running, and so it says he pursued them and pursued them and pursued them, gaining back all the wealth and making sure he got back the hostages that had been taken. And he's on his way home. And the king of Sodom comes out to meet him, you know. You know, Abraham, you are so awesome, right? And the king of Sodom comes out, and then comes this king, Melchizedek. And he shows up. He just comes out of nowhere, and he shows up. His city was not attacked. And he blesses Abraham. And it's, it's, he's setting this scene, this, this incredible man. Melchizedek, he says, it says, is the king of righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Salem is the word, comes from the word shalom. He's the king of a place called Salem or shalom. Most think that probably that was Jerusalem, early Jerusalem. And he says, he says to him, he blesses him. And what is the author telling them? He's been telling them all along that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And he's saying here, look, here's this king that is the forerunner of Jesus, that is the foreshadowing of Jesus. Do you want righteousness in your life? Do you want peace in your life? This is where it's going to come from. Seek him. Because if we want righteousness, we need the king of righteousness, and that is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. We receive justification. What is that? It is that we are declared not guilty. When we accept, a person accepts Jesus Christ as their savior, there is something that happens. They are declared not guilty. We receive that. It's good to know when you know you're a person who's guilty, that you have been declared not guilty. But also, it's not just that. Because a release from guilt would just leave us morally neutral. We are declared righteous. It's credited to our account. This is the theological word imputation. It is taken from one account and placed in another account. Righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed in That's why he's the king of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that frees us. That frees us from condemnation. Romans 6, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy always tries to keep us ashamed, always tries to make us feel guilty all the time, to feel condemned. Interestingly, that is an effective tool of religion also. When we accept Christ by faith as our Savior, we are accepting his righteousness. So that when the enemy tries to burden us with shame and continual guilt and condemnation, we can say, no. I have accepted this righteousness that was done on my behalf. So this is not true about me. 
So we don't have to be on this treadmill of religious works. We don't want you to sign up for port to minister to the homeless because that's what good Christians do. No. We want you to sign up for port to minister to the homeless because it appeals to you, this idea of serving someone else. And I always say this about this, working with the homeless, serving someone else who can never thank you, who can never in any tangible way thank you. That's why we want you to serve them. We don't want to guilt you into doing it. That's no good. That's just religion. But the cross and the gospel say you have been made righteous by who you are in Christ. He's the king of peace. When circumstances are scary and hard, we trust him and we trust that he is working. So when we want peace, we need to look to Jesus. This is what the author just keeps hammering over and over and over. Trust Jesus, follow Jesus. The author brings these things up because they need it. These people are in difficult times. They are oppressed. They're marginalized. We talked about that some even last week. They needed to see that Jesus transcends our, transcends our struggles. He is greater than them. Now he says about Melchizedek, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, we, we went through this some already where I, some people think that this is a theophany, this is Jesus Christ in the flesh, and I said that I, I, that is a possibility. I don't lean that way. Um, and part of it is because of the way Jews, uh, Jewish scholars would work, especially back then, but even to this day. They would look at the things that are not said as oftentimes just as important as the things that are said in Scripture. And what is the writer of Hebrew saying? The writer of Hebrew is saying, I think here, we don't know about his father and mother. We don't know Melchizedek's genealogy. He came out of nowhere. So he has no genealogy, which would be a terrible thing for most Jews without beginning of days or end of life. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. Resembling, this is his clue that I don't think this is Jesus Christ. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. He is like Jesus. He's a forerunner of Jesus. He's a foretaste, a foreshadowing, a glimpse of Jesus for us. And so, when we don't know these things for them, they would just say, we just don't know them. This is a way of saying that. And he says in verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch, patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, this is where we begin to see how stunning this would be for a Jewish reader around 66 to 70 AD. Why would this be so stunning? And, and it's hard for us to understand but here, he's admitting, he's saying, just think how great he was. He says, I know this is a hard to swallow thing. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. What is going on there? Well, you see here, and in verse 2 it mentioned it, we're seeing something that would be astounding to them, incredible. Here's Abraham. You know, I like to think he's astride his war camel. You know, he's all decked out and wearing some, some stuff he just won in battle, looking magnificent and strong and great, and the king of Solomon comes out, and people are like, Abraham, 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 yeah. You know, they're all cheering for him. He's, 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 he's Abraham. He's the patriarch. To the Jews, he's the, their father. He is their father. They would say all the time, Father 
Abraham. And it's not Father Abraham's many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. But it's, that's the idea. He's their father. He's the father of their nation. And in verse one, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the greater blessing the lesser. In, in, in uh, verse two, and then again in verse four, he mentions Abraham tithes to, to, to Melchizedek, the lesser giving honor to the greater. And verse four is basically a Jewish way of saying, did you get that? This is inconceivable. Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is worthy of honor and is greater than he is. That word for plunder is really the Hebrew word that means the top of the heap, the best of the best. It means Abraham gave to Melchizedek the best of all the spoils. Took one-tenth of the spoils and said, eh, that one's a little tarnished. Nope. Eh, yeah, that's a good one. Yep. Set aside 10%, gave it to Abraham, the best of the best. And this is something that could be good for us to learn sometimes too, isn't it? God's looking for our best. Not just in giving, but in what we do. In our time, in our talents, all these types of things. We often, and listen, I'm not judging because I'm struggling too. We often figure out how much we're going to give God after we've done everything else, made sure everything else is taken care of, set aside for a vacation fund, and then go, oh, this is what's okay, I can give him a part of that. And God says, no, start at the beginning. Take that and then work out everything else with it. Our, our hearts are too often uh, wrapped up in our wallet and our stuff, and this challenges that. So in this story, what is the point? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And in the whole chapter, the point is the priesthood of Jesus Christ on the order of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So in verse 5, oops, I squished it too much, didn't I? It says, now the law requires the descendants of Levi. Okay, the Levites were the tribe that priests came from, from the family of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. But the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites. Even though they were also descended from Abraham, just like them, they were all equal here, was the idea. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So he's saying, I want to make this argument for you. I want you to understand where Melchizedek is in the pecking order here. He blessed Abraham. He's higher than Abraham. Abraham tithed to him. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And he's trying to gently lead them down a path that will show them that Jesus, the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, it is superior to the Levitical priesthood that they've grown up their whole life with. It's the fabric of their world. It's established by the law. The law establishes that. It establishes the tithes that are collected by the priests. The idea, they said they're fellow Israelites, the idea that everyone's equal here. Can I tell you something? We need to think that too. Everyone's equal here. Everyone's equal here. And I, I know I missed it, but I can remember years and years ago, it wasn't at this church, but it, years and years ago, when somebody came out to see me and they said, I need you to pray for this. And I said, okay, we, we have a, we'll put it on a prayer list. No, I just want you to pray for this. And I was like, oh, okay. 
you think my prayers get through the ceiling better than all these other people's prayers is what you think. And that's wrong. My prayers are no better than your prayers. We all are the same. I mean, that's what we always say. Everybody's welcome here. Nobody's perfect. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And anything's possible when God is involved. So he's establishing that to them. He's telling them. But he's saying something. Melchizedek's not a fellow Israelite. Melchizedek Melchizedek stands alone. He's greater. He's collecting the tithe from the person whose descendants collected tithes. So the the collectors are tithing to this guy. That's how high up he is. He gave the blessing. The blessing is this idea of an official pronouncement given by an authorized user. And he's repeating his point. I know this gets hard sometimes in these these two chapters because he just keeps repeating his point, but he's dealing with people that this is so ingrained with. It's hard for them. This is hard for them. He repeats it multiple times. Why? Because it's life-altering. Truth truth needs to be repeated because it can be life-altering. When I first heard about Jesus Christ, I had no clue what my brother was talking about. Didn't grow up in a family that went to church, didn't really know much about anything about that kind of stuff. And suddenly he came home from college talking about Jesus. And we all thought he was crazy. And he cornered me in a room. I knew it was coming. He cornered me in a room and he said, I want you to know what's happened to me. And I said, do I get to choose and whether I have to hear what happened to you? He's like, no. So he told me about Jesus Christ and what Jesus did to him and accepting Christ as your savior. And I said, thanks. And I got off the bed and ran. <laughs> and, and, and it took years. It took years. My brother got saved. One of my brothers got saved. And then my mother got saved. And I was like, oh, yes. And then my oldest brother, he got saved. And he was the one I looked up to. He was, he was the one that got in trouble all the time. And I thought he was the greatest guy in the world. And he got saved. And I can remember as a teenager, I literally did this, and I think, what a stupid person I am. I said, I will never accept you. It's like I'm admitting there's a God in the very words where I'm saying, I, don't, I won't take you. I won't accept you. And after about five years of repeating, it struck home. And I suddenly went, oh, my goodness. This is what I've been looking for. So, verse 8, in the one case, so he's repeating, he's repeating. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. He's saying, look, the Levitical priests, they collect that, that tithe. They're dying. There's nothing special. They're just like us. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living, he says, look, there's something different about Melchizedek. We don't know that he died. We don't know anything about him. Maybe God took him up. We don't know. So this is different. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, the the priests of the Levitical tribe, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. This is something the Bible talks about sometimes, this whole idea of ancestor being connected. And he's saying, look, Levi wasn't born, but this was like his grandfather, his great-grandfather, you know, however it worked. And he he said, so he's kind of in him. So Levi, he's saying, paid tithes to Melchizedek. All of this to say Melchizedek is greater. And I know you're thinking, okay, I understand. Melchizedek is greater. All right, but they didn't. They struggled with it. 
So that's what's going on. Now, this is something I get um, occasionally when, I, when we talk about biblical uh, passages and, and how, do we know, how do we know when they're written? Um, somebody even asked me not too long ago, how do, how do we know about when the book of Hebrews is written? We, we estimate the book of Hebrews was written about 66 to 70 A.D., right? We know that the Jews were struggling. We know that there were uh, um, a, lot, a lot of stuff going on at that time. But one of the things that, that is, is important here is the writer, he's saying the priests, when he says the priests are collecting tithes, he uses the present tense. He means at this moment, the Levitical priests are collecting tithes at the temple. That's what he's saying. So that tells us something, because we know when the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed around 70, 71 AD. And then, you know, I've read a a person who said, yeah, but you know what, this is a little backwater, and we've talked about this. This is a backwater country, backwater city. Nobody knows anything. There's no newspaper. There's no internet. Maybe the temple was destroyed, and people just don't know it. And so the writer just wrote like it was functioning because what they wanted to say was this book is written around 150 to 200 AD. It's not a firsthand thing. It's not that close to Jesus. It's not that old. That's what they want to say. But there's a problem there, right? And here's the problem. Yes, it's a backwater. Now, this is where we get into history. (laughs) I love history, all right? So whether you like it or not, here we go. The Jews revolted against Rome around 66 AD. They stage a huge revolt. They, uh, they, a, 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 a detachment of Romans in the Antonium in the city of Jerusalem, about 3,000 soldiers. So many Jews got so mad at what was going on that they overwhelmed that detachment. They took them all prisoner, took all their weapons. Then they found an armory in a city not too far that was super stocked, and they took that. So they were equipping themselves for war, and they were going against... And uh, it, it, was a, it was a very difficult time. And then the guy who was in charge said, we're going to show these Romans, execute every one of those prisoners. And they killed every prisoner. And of course, that Rome said, no, we can't have this happen. And so the 12th Legion was ordered to move towards Jerusalem. Now, the 12th Legion is one of the most storied legions in the history of, of, of Rome. It was founded by Julius Caesar. He led them to significant battles. And because of the victory parades he was doing with the 12th Legion, all the people said, this is the greatest guy in the world. Make him Caesar. And they did. And so now it's years afterwards, but the 12th Legion is not that far away. And it starts marching. And there's, you know, we know where the battle happened, the total events we don't know. But they walked through 36,000 men. And they walked through a mountain pass. And the Jews stationed archers and boulders. And, and they, started, uh, they started just massacring them. So the men started moving. And the trouble is it's so narrow. If you know, oh, this is too much history. It's so narrow. The Romans, their strength was they would get themselves into formations. And they were just impenetrable. But it was too narrow for their formations. And so it became a free-for-all. And suddenly men were coming out of caves. Men were coming, and it's raining arrows. And they just bolted, and they suffered a humiliating defeat. Thousands and thousands of soldiers died that day. It was a massacre. And the word got back to Rome. Now here's the problem. Rome, Rome is in charge of the, whole, the known world at that time. That's their kingdom. They can't have, they can't have a bunch of farmers 
defeating a legion. It's bad press. It's not good. And this became suddenly all over the world, the, the word spread. And Rome's like, oh my goodness, people are going to rise up again. They think we're weak. So they sent another legion, much larger, 50,000. They said, don't go through that pass. <laughs> Duh. They learned, right? And they massacred the Jewish people. It was horrific. Men, women, children, when they took the city of Jerusalem, they tore the temple down brick block by block until there was nothing but some walls. The wailing wall that you see now is one of those walls. And so they tore it down and they massacred people because they had to make an example of them, right? The whole world knew about this. Even though it was a backwater country, even though it was a city that's not that famous in, in the Roman world, the whole world knew because Rome made sure the whole world knew what happens to people who rise up against them. So the idea, this is my long way of saying, it's written about 66 to 70 AD. That's what it is. It's written about 66. Now, oh gosh. And I know some of you are like, Bob, we would have just believed you. <laughs> you just could have told us. I know, but then I didn't get to go over all this. I mean, I spent a lot of time studying this cool history, so you got it's got to be used. No, it's, it's, I want you to see, when, when we talk about what dates, what the dates of books are, this is the kind of research that goes in. This is just one little thing in the book of Hebrews that tells us about when it was written, of many things. And so, in verse 9 and 10, it says, one may say even that Levi who collects the tenth paid the tenth through Abraham because, because as one might say Levi who collects the tenth, that's in the present tense. The priests of the tribe of Levi are still collecting the tithe and it happens at the temple. That's the key, all right? Okay, fine, move on. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One of the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. So he's saying, I understand what I'm telling you is ground shaking. I'm telling you that there's this new priesthood. And what does that do? That just doesn't affect the priesthood. That shakes the law, the whole foundation of everything. And he's saying, I understand to you readers, I understand this is shaking your foundation. What you've believed your whole life is being shook. And it says, so why would we need another priest? Why? He says, because the law, the law had to be changed. The law was sent to show people what was true about themselves. The law was sent to show people you're a sinner. You can't do it. We don't like that these days, do we? We don't like that. You want to go to your, go to your work and say, what's up, sinners? People are like, wait, 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 who are you? Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? You know? And you might say, oh, no, I'm a sinner too. And you're like, I know, I know you are but don't, talk, don't call me. You know, people don't like that that much. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says this is true. We're sinners. And then when people realize that they're sinners, then the law creates this institution to cover their sins. Sacrifices were made over and over to cover sins. They were so used to this. It happened all the time. Very regular. The Levitical priesthood represented man before God. The prophets represented God before man, but the priesthood, that was their job. And it says, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. Now, 
He's talking about Melchizedek, but he's talking about Jesus too. He's saying, you know, we all know the law. The law says a, a priest can't be king and a king can't be priest. We have the, the tribe of Levi where we get our priests. We have the tribe of Judah through, where we get our kings. Those two are kept separate, which is a brilliant kind of a checks and balances idea to keep things that way. And he says, so you can't have someone who's both. It's impossible. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He's from the kingly tribe not the tribe of Levi. But God gave them warning of this, and he's going to remind them too. Ezekiel and Zechariah both prophesied that there was coming a priest king. And the Jewish scholars, you can, we can read their writings even today, they puzzled over this. How could he be a priest king? It's two different tribes. He can't have two fathers. And then someone's saying, maybe his father will die. He'll get adopted. You know, they started trying to think of ways of, of working that out. He says, nope, this one, this one, his tribe has never served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah in regard to the tribe Moses. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. There's nothing in the law that allows Jew, someone from Judah to be a priest. And if we have said, and if we have said, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And then he says, this is his clincher. He quotes from Psalm 110. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Talking about Jesus, talking about the Messiah that's coming. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he's clenching it. He's closing it. He's, he's kind of hemming them in all around. He's saying, do you see? Do you see? I understand how you're struggling with that because he can't be a Levite. But... There's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than the Levites. They offered the tithes to him. You know, he's, he's bringing this to them. And Jesus proved his priestly authority, not on a genealogy, but on his appointment to the priesthood by God, his father. And it says an indestructible life, the power of an indestructible life at the end there. Jesus proved it by the resurrection. The resurrection clinched it. Why is this important? Why is this life-changing? This was their whole lives. Understand this. This is the way they coped with life by interacting through the Levitical priesthood. Just like us, they made bad mistakes. They did bad things. Just like us, they experienced guilt and shame and the weight of sin in their lives. And they would go to the priest with a sacrifice and they would say, will you sacrifice to the Lord for me so that my sin may be covered? so that I can approach God and commune with God. But it was always temporary, and they knew that. They knew it was always temporary. They knew they'd have to do it again and again and again for their whole lives. And now they're Christians. They are accepted by Jesus the Messiah. But things aren't going the way they thought they would. Things are going difficult. So they went back. They wanted to go back to the old ways, the former things, the old habits, the old coping mechanisms. And we can do that too. It's not the same exactly, but it's very similar. And the author is showing them, you don't need that. Jesus is superior to everything that you think you need. Because we all have things we hold on to. We all have ways that we cope. And the author is saying, no, you need Jesus. He's the ultimate for that. For some, it may be alcohol or drugs or pornography or, or, or self-righteousness. Well, I'm better than them, so I must be pretty good. That's a coping mechanism. 
even something is sometimes fun, but it can be, you have to watch it. Binging on TV, binging on Netflix. Or just allowing yourself to become more narcissistic, to think it's all about me. It's all about me. And he's saying, no, for all that, all your drama, your problems, your difficulties, your threats, your fears, your weight, your shame, your guilt, your pain, look at him. Look to him. All those things that weigh on you like that. He says, look to him. He said the former regulations is set aside, form your regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope was introduced by which we draw near to God. The former ways are gone. He says it's new. Your former ways, trying to obey 613 commandments, trying to obey every day, 613 commandments. Good luck. He says we set, those have been set aside. And Jesus is saying to them, no, I'm better. I can be your warrior. I can be your king. I can be your brother. I can be your friend. Not I can be. I am. Your brother, your king, your lover, your empathizer, your sympathizer. In everything you go through, it's me. Look to me. And our problem is sometimes we say, I know Jesus is my savior, but man, I still need that. I still really, really. I need more of that. I need more to hold on to. I mean, it's just like when, when Jesus, John the Baptist first saw Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I can imagine some of the Jews goes, you mean, you mean covers? You mean covers the sin? And John's like, no, this is new. He takes it away. And we're going to look into that later on what that means for it to be taken away not temporarily covered. So, takeaways for us. Very difficult passage. A lot of intricacy, a lot of thought, a lot of stuff that we're not quite familiar with. First takeaway is this. There's a principle of giving. There's a principle of giving our best in all areas of our life. Second thing for us to take away is this. We are righteous. It is settled. We are not condemned. It is your destiny. That's it. Third thing, this is a personal thing. He is a personal Savior. He is involved in the minutia of our everyday life. He's interested in all of it, every bit. Another thing is we need to understand we are often tempted to run to our coping mechanisms. And at those times, we need to consciously say, no, I'm going to run to Jesus. I'm going to run to Jesus. This thing will just be a temporary pleasure or a temporary this or a temporary that, and then it will be gone, and then it will be gone. In all of this, he's telling them, Jesus is better. No matter, in every aspect of your life, he is better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is true. It teaches us. It confronts us. It encourages us encourages us, and it convicts us. Lord, help us to let your word have its way in our life and let your spirit work on our lives to change us from the inside out. As we leave this place, Lord, help us to see with your eyes people we can serve, people we can love, people we can minister to, people we can give a good word to. And as we do that, we honor you and fulfill your commandments. In your name we pray, amen.